The podcast you're about to listen to is called Investigative Action. Within NCIS and report writing, any time we conduct any kind of investigative work is reported in the report of investigation as an investigative action. Everything from crime scenes, rape examinations, autopsies, everything that we do in a case file is reported in an investigative action. For this podcast, I have taken our investigative actions from the reports from the agents themselves. This is the report into the Marine Corps barracks bombing in Beirut, Lebanon on October 23rd, 1983. Uh, well, the uh, the volunteer list came out for, uh, for Beirut and uh, I put in for it. And uh, the only thing I said is, if I go, I'd like to have my first pick a duty station, uh, you know, when I finish. And it was a supposed to be, a, you know, four month deployment, and it was considered an you know, afloat tour. Uh, so I, I was aboard the uh, basically at the time the the, the main ship was the uh, USS Iwo Jima, mm-hmm. and uh, so I volunteered. It was funny when I did. My father calls me. I'm in Japan. He calls me. Says what are you doing? I says, well, what do you mean? What am I doing? Well, the embassy hadn't happened yet. And, uh, and, 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 you know, so there was, we were there in a peacekeeping role, if you will, uh, the, the Marines and the, the Navy Fibron. So he says, what are you doing? I said, well, what? He says, why are you volunteering to go to the Middle East? I said, well, um, you know, it's something I want to do. And they're going to, they're going to give me my first duty station afterwards. And he said, I said, wait, wait, just a minute. You of all people, <laughs> you've done Korea, three tours of Vietnam and you're flying in the cold war and everything else. Uh, you're, you're, you're saying that to me and he, I'll never forget. He says, son, I just want you to know something. I'm a little older and a lot wiser now. <laughs> <laughs> I said, okay. So, um, I got selected and uh, Ray Carmen was already over there, you know, Ray. And uh, so I was going to replace him and it's in, it was independent duty. Um, so uh, I, I, I broke the record on Okinawa of packing up and leaving the island like in seven days. Uh, I didn't even have orders in hand and they were already packing up my, my house. I'd sold my car, moved into the hotel, just waiting for the orders to actually come in when they did. Wow. I mean, I think I think it broke a record. And uh, so where, where did so where was Janice and the and the soon to be born baby? No, the baby was born. Baby, baby was born. Okay. Baby was born. We were in Okinawa. So we packed up and uh, we flew uh, back to the States. And um, I left Janice in San Diego. Okay. Uh, excuse me. We flew to L.A. Okay. And uh, she left and got on an aircraft and went down to San Diego with her parents with the baby to stay there for my deployment. And I continued on to New York okay, uh, and then on to uh, uh, Rome and then ultimately down to Naples. And it was one of those things where it's probably the hardest thing I'd ever done was leave my wife and baby at the airport. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I, I walked away. I couldn't, I couldn't turn around. I couldn't look back. I, I you know, I was kind of teared up. It, yeah. It's a tough thing to do. It was tough. It was a tough yeah. thing to do. And uh, my wife told me later that some woman came over and put her arms around her and said, oh, honey, he's not worth it. It's okay." (laughs) (laughs) She said, no, you don't understand. (laughs) He's going to Beirut. (laughs) Oh, my goodness gracious. So so I I arrived. I arrived in uh, in Rome and uh, uh, then made my way down to uh, Naples. I think I if I recall, I went by train down to Naples. Mm-hmm. And I, I went to uh, went to the office and was interviewed or interviewed. I was uh, briefed, if you will, on, you know, the situation, because the office there was what supported uh, the Beirut. Uh, I don't want to call it the adventure, if you will. Yeah. Uh, the uh, that was a, that was a regional headquarters and John Devonzo was the sack. So I got my briefings and then they told me I, I have to get a visa from, uh, from the Lebanese in order to enter the country. Like, okay, where do I get that? Well, you got to go back to Rome. So <laughs> while I was down there, I had a couple of days and this is where I met the red Blake people. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were all there. And, uh, so they, they got having me. a good time. 
Oh, having a great time. Matter of fact, I went out with him for a big picnic and a ball game, softball game, uh, sure. was playing catcher, having a great time, you know, and having some nice, uh, cold, cold vibrations with him. And, uh, so anyway, it was time for me to go back. I, I, I got on the train and went back up to, uh, to Naples, I mean, to uh, Rome. Mm-hmm. And now I have to go to the Lebanese embassy uh, and submit my paperwork and try to get it expedited, what have you. So I had to leave my paperwork there with them for the day or two, and then I could pick it up. So while I was in Rome, I, I did the touristy things. You know, I kind of went around and saw things and um, tried to prepare myself for whatever I was getting into. Then I come back, picked up my uh, my 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 uh, visa along with my passport, and I kept my passport, but picked up my visa. And then it was time for me to leave, and I left on a uh, left Rome on a MEA flight to uh, Beirut. Well, first of all, I'm at the airport and the aircraft uh, is delayed like three, three hours or something like that, maybe a little longer. And they couldn't tell us. They said, yeah, you'll be going. You'll be going. We just have to wait. Unbeknownst to me that uh, while I'm boarding the aircraft, that the Beirut International Airport had just been shelled Um, and it was under under attack, if you will, um, the airport itself. And the airport was a lifeline. Mm -hmm. to that whole situation over there for the Lebanese government. So, so uh, Grant, real quickly, could you explain for the audience what was going on in Lebanon about that time, okay. all, all the issues that were happening? Yeah, there was basically um, uh, the, the, <laughs> the Israelis had invaded Lebanon. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were push, trying to push back uh, the, uh, the forces up there. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Palestinians and the Syrians. And mm-hmm. there were 27 warring factions wow. in Lebanon at the time. Uh, and I mean, that's uh, the Druze and the Flange and the Maronites and this and that and all these different uh, groups, little mm-hmm. warlords, if you will. Plus, um, there were the Syrians, uh, the Israelis. Then there was us, uh, U.S., Brits, Italians, French, uh, there were some Russians there too, also in the Bacaw Valley. Um, there was just chaos. And uh, wow. so they, the Israelis had, had pushed them, uh, had gone in and tried to take control. Uh, just, uh, just before that is when um, the first time the Americans went in, I don't remember the exact dates, but the Americans went in and they helped to evacuate uh, Yasser Arafat mm-hmm. out of the country. Uh, I think they removed him, helped him get out to Tunis, and he was mm-hmm. going to take all his fighters with him. And so there was so much upheaval. And they were uh, the Gramail uh, was a president. President Gramail was a, a president of the country, and he was trying to hold it together. And uh, with these different coalitions and trying to get things happening, it was just chaos. Best thing you could say. Yeah, sure. So uh, we. Uh, I, I arrived there and uh, uh, first thing happens, I'm walking through the airport after, after arriving. And it, like I said, it had just been attacked and I'm walking through over broken glass in the airport. And there was a vehicle out in the parking lot that had taken a direct hit from a, uh, a rocket. Mm-hmm. Um, and I knew the Marines were there obviously, cause that's where I was going. Yeah. Uh, there were five ships in the Fibron, which were off the coast. Mm-hmm. And that was the Iwo Jima, the El Paso, the Austin, the, uh, um, um, it was an oiler supply. I don't remember all of them. There were five vessels there. Yeah. And then there was about 1,800 Marines on the beach. So when I, I get there and I come through baggage claim, uh, I lost one of my bags. I, I didn't lose it. It was detained. Later, <laughs> I had to come back and pay a airport tax to retrieve my bag. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, so I go out to the, to get a, to get a taxi and it's getting dark now. And, uh, I get into these disagreements with taxi drivers. They're fighting over my luggage, trying to get my, get the fare. And I finally just grabbed my bag, threw it in a taxi and said to the guy, American Marines now, now unbeknownst to me, they were, the, where I needed to go was about 700 yards away. <laughs> I wound up just over there. Yeah, just over there. <laughs> I wound up paying this guy like uh, the equivalent of about $2,800 in Italian lira. <laughs> I got ripped off royally, but I didn't care at the time. Just give me the American Marines. 
So uh, I arrive and I get out of the taxi and I come dragging my suitcase and, uh, you know, my, my little show, uh, what do you call it? Uh, knapsack or whatever. And I'm walking up to the front gate and, the, and a camera bag. Yeah. I'm walking up to the front <laughs> gate and the Marine card, the Marine guard looks at me and says, well, you're one of three things. I said, really? He says, yeah, you're either CIA uh nis or a reporter i said and how do you spell your name (laughs) (laughs) so i was supposed to be met by ray carmen but ray due to delays he was there at the airport waiting for my plane to come in and evidently the aircraft uh was so it was so late he went back to the to the marine uh, uh, mal headquarters the marine amphibious unit headquarters and as i'm walking through the gate i see this guy walking up and he's wearing a bush bush shirt and a collared shirt, a bush jacket. Wow. And it's Ray Carmen. So I meet Ray. And uh, so from there, for the next three days, we did, you know, turnover. I got to uh, meet all his contacts in the U.S. Embassy, uh, in and out of the prime minister's palace, dealing with their security service people, mm-hmm. um, just getting caught on then we uh we go to go back out to the ship to do the turnover mm-hmm. and uh it was pretty funny because ray 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 tells a very f- interesting and funny story about my arrival in beirut <laughs> uh-huh. and back in the day uh, back in spring of 90 the NIST used to put out that bulletin and in the bulletin there's several stories about beirut and you know agents in lebanon at the time and there's Ray's story that talks about my arrival, something about his stuff that when he was there. And then there's my story. And it's if anybody wants to, they can find it on the, on the NIST website, the NIST, NISRA website uh, for the bulletin. It was like, so, like I said, spring, spring, summer or whatever night. Mm-hmm. But it's very comical. And uh, I kept telling him, I don't. Well, Ray's a good not. writer and he's all, he, oh. he can tell a funny story. Well, he, this is a great story and I'm not going to bore everybody with it, but they can read it <laughs> themselves. But uh, he, the, 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 the pinnacle of that is I kept saying, I don't think I'm going to like this. <laughs> and all Ray kept saying is, I want him to like this so I can get out of here. <laughs> well, it, let's go back. So let's go back to that time. This is about what, 1983? 83. 83. Yeah. So we're in 1983. And I, from my remembrances of what I used to see on TV and the news every night, the nightly news, was Lebanon was in chaos. Yes. I mean, it was not a safe place to be. Yet you fly right into the airport, come through airport customs like uh, any tourist and are picked up Mark, and taken to Marine Corps compound. Weren't many tourists at that time. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, and it used to be a fantastic place to go, tourism. Yeah, right? They called it the Riviera of the Middle East. It was gorgeous, wow. uh, beautiful. Uh, but with all the, the warring with the Israelis and when they were they were trying to take over the area, Mm-hmm. Uh, it kind of looks like what we're seeing on the television right now Wow! Uh, with the refugees. Now, Ray was there uh, during the, em- the first embassy bombing, uh, mm-hmm. 18 April of 83. Yeah. And he worked that with photographic coverage and helped recover uh, classified material and secure things and what have mm-hmm. you. So that had already, that, that had happened after I volunteered. <laughs> and then I was like, oh, <laughs> so you know what you're good. You know what you're getting into. Well, I didn't really understand it like that. Yeah. Uh, when the plane touched down and went to the end of the tarmac and turned around and started to head back to the terminal, mm-hmm. I look out the window and I see this sandbag bunker with an American flag sticking up. And I just said to myself, thank God I'm not the only one here. <laughs> <laughs> you know, So it's kind of like, what have I gotten myself into? I said, you know, you're a cop. You're not a soldier. <laughs> what yeah, are you doing? Exactly. <laughs> So I, uh, we turned over the office and then, uh, Ray obviously went on his way and, uh, I started, I started, I, I think I assumed, uh, some 40, some cases, wow. uh, a combination of things, you know, witness interviews, uh, some DIS background investigations, a little of everything. Yeah, sure. And, uh, we, uh, we, and then shortly thereafter, uh, I got an assistant or I say an assistant, a partner. Uh, Chief Warrant Officer Hank Bell came in as my uh, uh, second. And the beauty of that is Hank uh, was Marine, former Vietnam vet, and uh, he'd been with CID and carrying this credentials at Camp Lejeune for a long time. And he knew everybody in that command, right? From yeah. the 
the commanding officers all the way down. Uh, and that made the difference. Uh, that, that between personalities, uh, being able to work with one another and his knowledge uh, just made it, made it workable, made it doable. Mm-hmm. So um, we get there and um, uh, got started uh, working cases. Uh, state, we had a, I had an office, uh, uh, stateroom. Hank and I shared a stateroom in officer's country. Mm-hmm. And uh, had an office down in the forward brig of the ship, which we use for, you know, paperwork and what have you. Sure. And, and we'd go together or we'd go separately. We'd go out to do this, to go interview this person or that person. And a lot of those leads and things were from the States, you know, interview mm-hmm. this guy who may have been a witness to something. And uh, had some uh, minor issues, had some drug cases. Um, had uh, when I, when I before... <laughs> Before I Ray left, we were getting ready to go find a hotel. He was going to go to the Mayflower Hotel down in the Hamra district. And the legal officer comes out and says, hey, guys, guys, wait, wait, before you go, he says, I got a little drug problem out in uh, one of the rifle companies out on the kind of the front lines. Mm-hmm. So it was at the Beirut University. And um, uh, there was an area called Hazi Salam, which the Marines had, uh, had nicknamed Hooterville. And we had to go through Hooterville by convoy to get out there in jeeps. And that was a very eerie feeling because as you're going through, as you look around, you see Koamani's face all over painted on the walls and everything. And as long as there was people in the streets and things like that, because the Marines used to have to do patrols out there, uh, it was relatively safe. But if the people started to disappear, it, it could get very uncomfortable because you just didn't know if you, <laughs> they were going to be attacked or something. Wow. So we got out there and... Uh, we go to see the CEO of the rifle company. He tells us what he's got. And this Marines, uh, it, was, it was marijuana. And uh, so we identified seven people. And now you got to realize while all this is going on, there's all kinds of indiscriminate gunfire all over the place uh, and up into the Sheaf Mountains and those various factions that were warring even with each other, those warlords, uh, just all kinds of sporadic fire. So we go and we get, we got an office. I think it was, as I recall, I think it was almost like an arm, a little bit of an armory. Uh, there was some dragon rockets stacked over in the corner. There was, uh, you know, crates of ammunition. That was our desk and our seats. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we would call these Marines in uh, one at a time to interview them, interrogate them. Mm-hmm. And we'd read them the rights. Well, before they walk in, I'd say, yeah, give me your 16, your M16, give me your K bar. You're 45, whatever you've got. As I see, I'm joking. I say, you got any bazookas or hand grenades? No, 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 no. Take all that, render the weapon safe, set it in the corner, sit down. Now you read the guy has rights for drugs. <laughs> and I'll never forget, there's one little light bulb would hang, was hanging from the ceiling. So we worked late into the night, all the way through the evening until we began to come under attack later ourselves, which is one of Ray's stories. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then when you finish the interview, you go, okay, here's your M16, here's your K-bar, here's your 45, go back out in your fighting hole. What are you mm-hmm. going to do? And the whole time this was going on, you could hear gunfire and things all around. So uh, it was just pretty, pretty bizarre. I, wow. I never thought, like, you know, you'd be telling somebody and they wouldn't be able to understand it, but it's just it was what it was. So we, uh, we worked our case and um, the command dealt with the Marines. One of the things that they were very serious about was any kind of narcotics, especially with Marines in a fighting hole and mm-hmm. in a combat situation. That was serious business. Later, I had one Marine who was, uh, I did a case on that uh, was growing marijuana just outside the Constantino wire. So, and he wasn't selling it. He was just giving it away, <laughs> you know? <laughs> But uh, so uh, he ultimately uh, went to Leavenworth. Uh, uh, so why not go ahead? Start. We start that and kind of settled into a routine to do various uh, uh, casework. Uh, became very close with the uh, Marine Corps uh, helo pilots of the 46s and the 53s and the Cobra pilots, mm-hmm. and also the uh, medical team that came out of Jacksonville, the surgeons and nurses and male nurses that came to the area. And so that became our circle of friends, if you will, on the mm-hmm. beach and also, you know, on the ship. So uh, maintained an office, spent, spent probably two, three nights a week or more uh, on the beach. 
uh, in the beginning. Uh, and where, where, wherever you were at night, you stayed. You did not um, move from place to place um, because it just really, it wasn't safe to travel uh, between some of the uh, emplacements. Uh, and uh, you, just, you just stayed where you were. Right. Uh, at night uh, in the BLT, we'd sit up there and uh, I could sit up there and watch the Shoof Mountains and watch all the firefights going on in the Shoof Mountains, tracer rounds going everywhere. And mm -hmm. it was pretty interesting because uh, interesting sight to see. And then you say to yourself, wait a minute, there's something wrong with this. There's people both on the receiving and sending yeah. into this stuff. Yeah. Uh, we'd watch them shoot RPGs up in the air and you see the you see a little ball go up and light would go out. And then we'd count one thousand, two, three, about three thousand. You'd see it'd be a, a detonation. Mm -hmm. um, just crazy. And so, what was your accommodations when you were ashore there? You <laughs> sleeping with the Marines? Oh yeah. Uh, so when we got there, uh, we get to the beach. Let's say, and Hank and I would go to BLT, see the CO, XO. Uh, met the commanding officer at the time, Colonel Garrity, and talk about him later. Uh, Colonel Gerlich was the BLT commander, go see him. And he, uh, got the first Sergeant, first Sergeant David battle, great guy. And he took care of us. He, uh, again, like I said, Hank knew all these people. So mm -hmm. we got whatever. So our accommodations, he'd find us a rack, a cot, uh, sleeping bag. And I learned some really interesting things from, uh, from Hank at the time. Uh, you never get your sleeping bag and zip it up. You just wrap it around you and roll up in it. Mm -hmm. uh, you take your boots off only you sleep in your clothes you take your boots off and tie your boot strings together so you can grab them and run <laughs> yeah, <laughs> good that's good uh, good information Silly things like that flak jacket you never never zipped up your flak jacket you just use that velcro flap over it because mm -hmm. if you got hit in the zipper they couldn't get it off i mean i just learned things and uh, yeah. uh from him and so they we'd uh, he'd put us up in the blt where we could find us a rack and then we'd get up in the morning, half shower or whatever we got and take off and do whatever we had to do. Um, we would go see Colonel Garrity. And Colonel Garrity was the MAL commander. Fantastic gentleman. And he uh, he referred to us as the, the Doom Brothers or the Brothers of Doom. <laughs> Whenever he saw us coming, it was a problem, right? Um, and we would explain to him, you know, what, what, whatever the issue was. And he'd say, you know, go forth, do it, and tell me if you need help. And then whatever the results were, we would bring it back to him. And then the command would do whatever they felt was appropriate, for legal action, or whatever the case may be. Right. So um, we kind of, like I said, we settled into a, kind of a routine. I remember one time I was at the beach. And um, now, over a period of time, indiscriminate fire, sniper fire started again, uh, things like that. Uh, Hank and I were out at the embassy, I mean, excuse me, the university, and we're at the tennis court of the university. That was an LZ for, for the Marines. They'd come ferry people in and out. And we're waiting for a helicopter to come pick us up. And we're standing there talking to two Marines that are kind of hunkered down in their bunker. And we're talking and talking. And about that time, there's this crack, big crack, like a bullwhip, right, right, almost like right next to my ear. And obviously the individual had missed and Hank and I kind of dove in on, on each other and then down in the bunker on the top of the Marines and said, what was that all about? And they said, oh, that's Abdul, whoever they had a nickname for him. He, he jumps up about every half hour or so and takes and shoots around at us just for, you know, <laughs> keep us awake. I don't know. And we said, well, thanks for telling us, you know, that's kind of a thing. So we, uh, we would do that. And one time we went to the beach and uh, again, like I said, indiscriminate fire could be at any time. Incoming rounds could be at any time. And I went to the supply tent. I said, well, I guess I need to pick out a, uh, I need a flak jacket. So the supply sergeant, he kind of looks at me because I'm obviously a civilian. I'm wearing blue jeans, a cami top and, you know, whatever. And uh, later on, I changed them to complete camis. And he looks at me and he says, uh, oh, you're the, you, you must be that NAS guy. I said, yeah. He says, I can't just the flat jacket for you. I said, okay. So these are the old Vietnam flat jackets, not like sure. Keflars. Yeah. And so he goes in the back, he comes back and he hands me this flat jacket and it's got a great big bullseye painted on the back of it. <laughs> <laughs> so that's their joke for the new guys, right? 
And I said, okay, I took that thing, turned it inside out, put it on, started to walk away. And I heard him say, I think he's all right. <laughs> <laughs> so anyhow, like I said, you got into routine uh, uh, stuff, if you will. We'd fly from ship to ship, take care of issues on various vessels so that they send a message over and say, we need you to come over here and do this or do that. You know, maybe, a, 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 you know, an assault or a burglary or whatever. Uh-huh. And um, then in August, things started to really escalate. And then the Marines began to come under, you know, you know, random attacks again. Uh, they, they, they called it random, but when they start walking around and on you, it's not random. Uh, they're bracketing mm-hmm. you and the rest of it. So um, things began to really escalate and kind of curtailed us going to the beach on occasion uh, when, uh, when they were in the con- you know, high alert condition. Uh, but we did, we did what we had to do. Uh, so that's kind of a routine we got set in. And then, well, let's see, Hank and I were at the beach on a Friday night and uh, I guess we, we, we've been doing different things. Like I believe my recollection, we'd come together at the BLT and the BLT was a battalion landing team. And that was kind of the headquarters where they put most of the house and quarter, most of the, uh, the Marines. There were, there were Marines there. There was uh, Navy doctors, corpsmen. There was some army in there too. A couple of army, I believe. And uh, a couple of civilians, which was interesting. They come into play later. And we, uh, we were gonna, there was a US, a USO show that was gonna come to the BLT like that Friday night <clears throat> and play a little show. There were some country Western band out of uh, Atlanta, as I recall. And the next Saturday night, they were gonna come out to the Ojima and do the same show. So we said, you know what, we've been here a couple of days probably. Uh, let's go on back to the ship and we'll uh, shower, get a good meal, write some reports, do whatever we need to do. And we'll catch the show the next night. So we caught, as I recall, I think we, we fragged the, the last flight off the EWO, I mean, 1630, scheduled flight, if you will, uh, that kind of the Beirut buses that we call the, uh, the, the helos and also the, the um, vessels, the little boats that would run out to the ships. We caught the bus back to the EWO, did our stuff. Uh, next day, there was the, uh, the show in the hangar bay. And... Um, the uh everything was fine everybody goes to sleep and about six something in the morning zero six twenty on 23 april yeah. um i mean 23 october april was the embassy 23 october zero six twenty in the morning the detonation of the uh, uh the blt uh the bombing um initially you know, we're kind of waking. We hear all this, uh, all hell breaking loose on the on the flight deck because our stateroom was right below the flight deck. You can hear breaking bars and chains and things and helos right. winding up and what have you. And so, I kind of go out and so what's going on? And go into the wardroom. I guess get a cup of coffee. And we hear, hey, the you know the Marines have been hit. Well, okay, uh, not to think lightly of it. It's like the Marines have been hit a lot. What does that mean? And so they started launching helicopter after helicopter and they were going to the beach taking people to the beach uh and coming back from the beach uh bringing casualties yeah and they would land them and then bring them into the hangar bay and mess up uh, you know uh, set up a mass casualty to deal with uh with the, the recovered and the victims and it was growing it was just unbelievable and mm. i just sit there and said hank i mean what are we gonna do we gotta we gotta do something and i remembered that ray had just done basically the same kind of thing at the uh, at the embassy, yeah. Uh, so it's like I went to the Commodore France, Morgan France. And I said, "So I got to get to the beach," and he said, "Okay." So what are you going to do? I said, "I'm going to do the same thing my, my predecessor did. I'm going to photographic coverage and do whatever I can do." So I uh, I take off. Uh, we we got a flight. It was about I think it was about six. I think it was about five hours, four four and a half five hours later after they got you know, recovery people to help dig and then casualties that they've got out back to the ship. We, he says, I can get you on a helo and I can give you one pass. I said, all right. So we gathered our gear, cameras and, you know, lack of a better term, crime scene kit. And uh, we headed to the beach. Mm-hmm. As we're coming in, I mean, I know what the building looks like and I've seen it from the air. Yeah. And as we're coming in, uh, the, the, the side, 
on the bulkhead of the helicopter, the doors completely open. And by this time they had put uh, the crew chiefs in there in the window with a 50 cal and they've man, manned the helicopters and what have you. And as we're coming in, I'm kind of hanging out the wind, out the door, laying on my stomach and hangs hanging under my belt. And I've got the camera and I'm looking for the building because I want to take aerial photographs. And I'm going, my brain is saying, I know what it looks like, but I don't see it. Where is it? And then I see this thing, this, uh, the, the rubble yeah. and uh, some smoke rising and what have you. So we made a big pass around. I took a long series of photographs, aerial photographs, and then he put us down and uh, we went to, uh, we went to the site. And by this time there had been so many people who had arrived uh, America, I mean, Red Cross, the Red Crescent, uh, and uh, the Italians had come, the French had come, everybody had come to try to help uh, and, you know, recover. So you look at this building, and it was a four-story building that was concrete and rebar, and it was all glass initially, uh, with glass windows, but all that stuff was blown out, and the Marines, when they had moved in, they had put in plywood and plastic and everything for, for the elements. And there was this atrium in the middle of the building. And so the, the four floors of the building went around the atrium. So this vehicle born explosive that was driven into the building uh, went right in over the Sergeant of the Guard shack when it detonated, which, uh, you know, the explosion um, was officially was put out about 12,000 pounds of explosive yield. Uh, some of the Bureau's calculations later were about 18,000 pounds. And it pretty much lifted the building up completely with the explosion and the implosion. It just collapsed the building and everything just pancaked down. And within that, uh, between the, the, the floors were where our guys had been sleeping and they were mm -hmm. caught, you know, obviously unawares. Um, the the building itself, uh, we found parts of the building, rebar, it's three quarter inch pieces of rebar twisted like pretzels, you know, half a mile away. Uh, one of the furthest measurable points was the air traffic control tower there at the, at the airport. And I believe, <clears throat> I don't know, 1,500 and some feet away. And it had blown nine safety windows of the air traffic control tower directly right through. Uh, so that's that, I think that was one of the furthest measurable points from the from the blast itself. Um, the truck was a, uh, a state bed truck, a Mercedes truck. Um, now, you have to understand all the recovery was all around the building. They were trying to get the, you know, there was cranes in there. And everybody was in there digging people out, trying to get people out, the survivors. Mm -hmm. And the... Uh, um, the, the building itself on the outside was all the recovery. Well, the inner portion, which I was concerned with, was where the crater was from the, from the blast itself. The crater was something in the neighborhood of, uh, if I remember pretty close to it, I'm trying this thing again, was um, 39 feet across, about 11 some odd feet uh, from the rim of the crater to the bottom of the crater. And then below the crater, it went about another five and a half, six feet, um, where some of the flooring, the marble, had been driven like a shape charge straight down in the bottom of that crater. Right. The rest of that was fill crater from the falling and fill. And then there was a crater itself. So when I sent off my first messages, um, I sent it to headquarters and then, you know, the Bureau got involved and because I knew that the Bureau had been there to work on the embassy bombing mm -hmm. and I figured they're going to send those people again. I said, look, I, I, I'm an investigator. I'm not a bomb technician. I don't, <laughs> this is big. Yeah. Um, and they, they, they started to argue a little bit, if you will, how you can argue in a message. And they said, no, it can't be, it didn't happen. There's got to be a, a basement there. I said, no, there's no basement right there. There was a basement on either end of the building and a small tunnel that would connect those two, but not the size of this crater. So they finally uh, relented and decided, okay, uh, we need to send somebody. And uh, so now I know that I've got FBI bomb techs are going to be in route. So I continued to go around and document everything I possibly could. Uh, we found remnants of the truck. 
uh, found uh, part, uh, we dug out the, the crankshaft out of the ground, uh, the truck, the truck and the individual pretty much vaporized. Um, we found pieces of Mercedes truck with serial numbers and we, they, later on they were able to run those and they were able to determine from the factory where it had been until the time it hit the shores of Lebanon. It just was became a ghost. There's no tracing it. Mm-hmm. Um, the, uh, the crater and the immediate area was what I considered mine, my crime scene. Right. And ultimately, I, I protected that crime scene, if you will, <clears throat> with some Marines. While recovery was going on on the outside, this was all interior. Nobody was interior but us and protected that crime scene for nine days until I could get the, uh, to the FBI bomb techs, uh, arrived. Hmm. Uh, they were escorted by, uh, Wes Schuler and Dick Cook from our headquarters. And the two bomb techs that came over was a gentleman by the name of Dan Diffenbaugh and Tom Thurman. Um, fantastic people. Danny, I believe had done the embassy bombing. I don't think Tom was there for that one. But Tom was the one when Lockerbie 103 went down, he's the one that found the little chip that helped bring down that whole case on, on wow. the I mean, just fantastic people. So once they arrived, we uh, we uh, we started figuring this thing out. How, how what are we gonna do? So we commandeered a bunch of Marines to help with the sifting and the this and the recovery and the, you know, looking for any kind of bomb remnants, whatever we could. And they, uh, they identified it as a, a gas-enhanced bomb uh, in the back of this uh, state bed truck, big Mercedes state bed truck. And virtually, the way it's explained to me is if you take a, one stick of dynamite, you put one can of propane up against it, or a bottle of propane, it would enhance the explosive yield of that stick of dynamite two to three times. Wow. So it was big. Well, uh, let me ask you this, as far as when you arrived on scene there, and you see this massive crater mm-hmm. and, and what was the diameter of the crater? How big was that crater? Thir- about 39 feet, some odd inches across, mm-hmm. about 11 feet, some inches down from the rim of the crater to the bottom of the crater. And then the true crater went another five and a half to six feet down. Wow. It was, it was massive. So when you look at that, you're the agent and you've got a partner who's a warrant officer mm-hmm. and you're sitting there and you're looking at it going, I mean, I can only imagine what was in your head at that time? What in the hell am I going to do? Well, yeah, uh, I, I mean, I never faced anything like that, and yeah. uh, so what? And we no did, one had, I don't think. <laughs> not that I'm aware of. Yeah, but we cordoned it off. We had Marines help us keep anybody out of it. I got, got at one point. I kind of got into a disagreement with a Lebanese bulldozer operator. Later, he was trying to push dirt in my hole. Uh, you know, or not, uh, that was, that was much later after they cleared one of the areas out. Yeah. Uh, but just protecting the crime scene and documenting anything and everything I could. Wow. We had, uh, we had devised a, uh, a, a little, um, sheet, checkoff sheet, uh, you know, a questionnaire mm-hmm. that we gave to all the different Marines. <clears throat> Where were you? What did you hear? What did you see? What did you yeah. smell? What did you taste? You know, da, 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 da. Yeah. trying to figure out, you know, where people were in relation to the, to the, to the bombing uh, itself, uh, which did some incredible things. Um, mm. We continued to do that. Uh, we documented everything we could find. Um, well, until, and then when the bomb guys got there, we continued to work with them and the EOD uh, to, to process that. Um, so on these uh, witness interviews that you did this, um, if you will, checklist of, of questions, mm-hmm. was there one that stood out to you as you re- remember that said, hey, this guy is, you know, or I'm just trying to imagine what it would, what it was like at the time to try and get information on exactly what happened as far as the bomb? Well, people told us what they knew, obviously. Yeah, yeah sure. Um, there was uh, there was there was some interesting things that happened. There was one Marine, they nicknamed him Cowboy Calhoun. Uh, he was on the roof of the embassy and he rode the rubble all the way down. Wow. There was, there was another one that was on like a third deck of a building and when the truck came in, and entered the building and detonated. It blew him out the window into the parking lot. He landed and turned around and saw the building drop. There was another uh, 
uh, Marine who was on post, post six or seven, those were the two that the truck went through bet between to get to the building. Uh, and I'll talk about that in a moment. Um, him, uh, there was just, there was another Marine that was blown out of the back of the building and he was in a sleeping bag. And when they came from the Mao headquarters running over, they saw this bag moving and they looked at it and they unzipped it. And there's a Marine in there and he just looked up and said, Hey man, you got a Coke? <laughs> he had no clue. Wow. Um, wow. The, the, the points of uh, devastation and what that bomb had done was pretty incredible. And it's all documented. <clears throat> yeah. Um, there was stories about, and there was a lot of different rumors going around about who it was and what had happened. And there was, uh, it was a, it was a, a yellow state bed truck, a big state bed truck. I guess it had a tarp over it. And, um, whether or not there was a, there was a kill switch in there or a dead man switch or whether or not it was remotely, um, initiated. I, I've got to be careful. I'm not sure what I'm, I'm not going to say anything there. Yeah. Uh, but it, it, there was three parking lots. And again, this was in a peacekeeping role, if you will. We were in the back, we were in the background. We were supposed to be peacekeepers. But when that truck came through, there was one parking lot, then it went into the second parking lot. Then it ran over a Constantino wire, which just separated those two parking lots. And then another couple of hundred yards to between the two uh, posts, mm -hmm. posts, and then into the building when it detonated. Um, yeah, it just, uh, wow. just phenomenal. And, uh, so we just, we just hunkered down and did what we could do. Yeah, sure. Uh, and then later, uh, Naples, you know, they sent, uh, messages and said, you need more help. I said, well, I don't know, I, you know right now. I think we got it for what mm -hmm. we're doing. Mm -hmm. Um, and I opened, I, I sent an investigation. I sent an, I sent a report, uh, sent the first message out saying, you know, and I, I was calling it a terrorist bomb. Yeah. Uh, terrorist attack, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, I was, I was, I won't say chastised, but I was told that that's not really within the jurisdiction of NIS mm -hmm. uh, from a criminal perspective. Uh, you know, and I'm saying, oh, yeah, I think so. Yeah. And I ignored it and I cut it open anyway <laughs> <laughs> and sent it back. And I said, what I'm doing, I said, I'm getting providing, you know, assistance and photographic coverage, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, it was, you know, it was uh, ultimately it was all, everything was accepted and continued the investigation. Sure. Um, wow. I, I, I could tell, I mean, there's all kinds of stories, Yeah. Uh, but it was, uh, it was remains probably to this day, one of the most impactful things in my life. I can imagine. It, I think it has, uh, it, it um, there's probably not a day that goes by that I, I, I something doesn't come to mind. Think yeah. about it. Yeah. Um, I could go on and on. I mean, just wait, what do you, it was a forgotten war. It was, yeah. it was a political situation. Uh, President Reagan was, uh, was coming up for reelection. Mm -hmm. uh, I met, I met vice president Bush over there at the time. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there was a, I, I was in, I was held, in, I could have been held in contempt of Congress at the time uh, because the congressional delegation came over, you know, they come over and they want to ask all these questions to congressmen and they, they send their, representatives or their congressional assistants sure. out to line mm -hmm. up the interviews. And I was, I was in the line for interviews and I had the, I had the photographs with me. I'd already had them developed. Mm -hmm. uh, they're on the ship and the negatives and they, uh, they, they're, they're interviewing me and they're asking me for this and asking me for that. And I told them what I knew at the time. And they said, can we have the pictures? I said, no, sir, you can't, I can't give them to you. And they said, well, yeah. why not? I said, cause I don't have the authority to give them to you. Mm -hmm. uh, and, um, they were really ticked off about that. Wow. And so they, uh, even they though it's an active criminal investigation, regardless, it made no difference. I kept telling them when you get back to Washington, you go petition my headquarters and mm -hmm. I'm sure they will gladly share everything with you, but I don't have the authority right. here to give this. To <laughs> and I stood fast. Yeah. And, uh, so I, uh, they said, well, we're, 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 we're going to, we're sending off a message. So they blast off a message to DC. And I tell you what, the distribution would have made your eyes water. You know, wow. you can imagine White House agency, this, that, and everything. And uh, and I said, okay. So what Grant does then is he goes and he takes the negatives and puts them in an envelope and drops them in the mail and sends them back to Naples <laughs> on the ship. Right then. Yeah. I don't have them. <laughs> and I, 
<laughs> Once again, call headquarters. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so yeah, so I did. So about, oh, I don't know what time it was in the middle of the night. I get the soft knock at the door. And it's one of the radio guys. And uh, they were my friends in the comm station. They sure they came and got me and said, hey, uh, Mr. McIntosh, I think you need to see this message. And it's a, it's a response from our headquarters telling the congressional delegation, you will not interview our agent in the field. You'll not do this. You'll not do that. Up, 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 up. Yeah. And I'm going, oh, thank you. Thank you. So they made a believer out of me that day. I'll tell you what. And um, so the next, you know, so they weren't very happy to say the least. So now the, the uh, congressmen are there and they're ready to do their interviews. And uh, uh, they realized that they weren't going to be able to talk to me. Oh, wow. And they've already interviewed Colonel Garrity. Uh, oh, the chief doctor. I can't think of his name right now. It escapes me. Um, uh, some of the some of the players. <clears throat> and I was in, supposed to be in that list. So I go down in the wardroom and the congressman's down in the wardroom and uh, he sees me and I was identified to him and introduced to him. And he says, so I understand you have all those pictures. I said, yes, sir, I do. He says, uh, well, where are they? I said, they're right here in my briefcase or my satchel. He says, can I see him? I said, no, sir, you can't. <laughs> and he goes, what? And I said, sir, I'm, I'm sorry. I don't have the authority to do that. I've been told no. And when you get back to Washington, you're more than welcome to get those items from, from my headquarters. And he goes, he starts off, well, son, I'm not upset with you, but I'm sure pissed off at your organization. <laughs> <laughs> then he starts it with a, and when appropriations come around, of course, I said, don't, 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 I'm just a peon here. Don't even start that with me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so he says, okay, he says, all right. I said, but Congressman, I said, you, you and I both know, you know, if we were back in the States, I'd be, you'd, you'd hold me in contempt of Congress. He said, what? I said, well, if we're in the States. He said, you know what, son, I think you're right. <laughs> wow. And he, I said, well, sir, that's never happened to me before. And uh, he goes, uh, want to have a cup of coffee? I said, absolutely. We sat down and shot the breeze and had a cup of coffee and that was it. Yeah. Uh, so for, from the congressional perspective. And then later on came out the long investigation, the long report and what have you. Um, but uh, shoot, Lee, what else do you want to know about it? Well, I, I, well, I, I think, think I think just to remember, there were 241 Marines that died. 241 that servicemen. Yep. 241 servicemen. There was about, we lost about nine before that, an indiscriminate fire, social, yeah. uh, I think it was nine, an indiscriminate um, uh, rocket attacks and artillery attacks and uh, sniper attacks. While we were, while we were doing mm -hmm. the recovery and while we were working the crime scene, yeah. uh, we were sniped at. Wow. Um, um, you know, just, it is what it is. Uh, Ed, <clears throat> Eddie Hemphill came out from Naples to help out. Yeah. And uh, there's a photograph of me sitting there with a with a plywood board and a big piece of paper and i'm doing the crime scene sketch and doing all that stuff and i'm marking as a massive sketch we have a we have the little flags with the orange things of where things were and mm -hmm. body parts if you will trying to identify the blast effect and what it did and the building and all that sort of thing so you know i just i just did what i knew and uh, did the best we could uh ultimately uh that was that was an eventful uh well, there were also French. That there were, I think there were uh, a report. I read fifty-eight yeah. French military that were that were yes. killed as well. Yes, yes. Did you uh, almost, uh, did you work with the French uh, in any way? No, <laughs> we were a little busy ourselves. Yeah. Uh, almost instantaneously, fifty-eight French, uh, French Foreign Legion, and uh, uh, paratrooper types. They had another building. They were hit at the same time, and then also a, uh, a Lebanese outpost or uh, checkpoint uh, further south of us was hit at the same time. Wow. Um, uh, prior to that, uh, you know, like I said, the, the uh, USS uh, Arizona showed up, uh, I guess, you know, for fire support. When she first arrived, uh, the war stopped, uh, if you will. There was not a lot of fighting. And, uh, and our people were just basically, um, we had now become participants and not peacekeepers anymore right. initially we were peacekeepers until the u.s navy fired in support of the lebanese army faction that were uh, bogged down in an area called supiel garb supiel garb and when, once we fired in support of those troops we now became you know combatants and right. uh, we were no longer looked at as peacekeepers, if you will. And then when the New Jersey arrived, she would uh, just go back up and forth uh, along the coast, look, look like a shark. I mean, you could look at it and go like, dun, 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 like Jaws. <laughs> and uh, 
and it wasn't until after I left that she ever fired 16 inch guns in support of the, the, the situation. Well, after that uh, incident, you must have sit there and go, okay, what next? If we're combatants, if we're considered combatants, what's going to happen next? I mean, what's, how are they going to hit us again? Well, that's a good point. Um, after they immediately started putting in serpentine barriers of mm -hmm. earthworks, um, after I left, my my replacement was Rod Stottinger, who used to be an agent with me at Point Loma. He, he mm -hmm. replaced me. And I, when he got there, I said, what are you doing? Why, why did you come here? <laughs> <You know? laughs> uh, but but that time they started digging deep and digging in and putting connex boxes underground. And that's where oh. they were living and making, you know, uh, until they ultimately until it was uh, until it was over. Yeah. Um, uh, wow. I. Ask me anything. I, I'll try and, you know. Yeah, it's, it's just interesting. You know, um, you know, I think that when we look back historically in the organization about incidents like this, even when you think about USS Cole uh, and how the crime scene was worked there and what you guys did and what, you know, what you did there at Beirut, that's always a consideration when you're conducting these type of investigations. What are what do I, what can I look back on that I can use as an example of something like this? And I'm sure that when the coal was hit, they said, okay, let's think, uh, you know, what, do, what do we got to do? Because there's a whole protocol at that point of what the agents that responded to the coal had to mm -hmm. work on. And I'm just wondering uh, if you've ever had that conversation with people about that, as far as comparing those instances. No, but immediately after, and as a result of the bombing, uh, the ATAC was, uh, uh that's right. Because of that, uh, yep. the anti-terrorist alert center, mm -hmm. their headquarters. And that was, that was something that came out of it. There were lessons learned, yep. uh, from communications, if you will. Um, yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's one of those things I, I, I had, a, had a couple of sayings. One was, you know, never forget, uh, uh the Alamo, Pearl yeah. Harbor, uh, Beirut 9-11, you know, yeah. never forget. Yeah. Uh, and as a result of that, <clears throat> I became a, a member of the Beirut Veterans Association, Good. Uh, which is all the guys that are survived. And uh, initially, I've been a, I'm a life member now, or I've been a life member. I was the first civilian that they actually changed the charter of the association to admit me. Mm -hmm. uh, as a civilian, because I was with them in the hole and everything else, and I have nothing but the utmost respect for those kids. Uh, sure. For what they did. Sure. And um, now, subsequently, it's a large organization filled with Gold Star family members and mm -hmm. you know some of the survivors and you know what have you. And <clears throat> they meet every year at Lejeune and have a, a memorial service on the 23rd of October. And then every five years, excuse me, every five years is the big reunion, and I'll be going again. Uh, this coming October is just is, is a regular and then there'll be a, a big one. Yeah. Uh, and I go every five years. That's good. Um, and I, I, I'm, I'm friends with all those guys. We're all on Facebook together. Everybody's supporting each other. Another family, different kind yeah. of family. Yeah, sure. Uh, of respect. Um, just, uh, it just, you know, like I said, it, it changed my life in a lot of ways. I hope you've enjoyed this investigative action for NCIS reports from the field. If you like what you've heard today, please go online to your favorite podcast service. Give us that five-star rating. Let us know how you feel about this particular episode. I'd love to do more of these in the future. And I think, it, I think it's a lot of fun and gets right to the point on what it's like to be an investigator for one of the finest organizations in the federal government, the Naval Criminal Investigative Service.